Welcome to Tolkien class session number 12. This class was the third that I conducted last Friday, and I apologize for the fact that my voice is getting increasingly hoarse at this point. However, we did make it through the coming of men into the West, though not, I should warn you, without some serious digressions along the way. Okay. <clears throat> so, we are now going to talk about the trials of the good, which are in some ways similar to the patterns of evil that we were looking at. Um, remember way back in On Fairy Stories, the emphasis that Tolkien placed upon the dangers that lie in wait amidst goodness and beauty and glory, that, uh, that things that are beautiful can be perilous, and not because they are themselves deceptions, but their beauty itself can be perilous. Um, and we can see that kind of thing going on several times, that... Just as uh, last time we were looking at Ungoliant as sort of a, a distilled little paradigm for the career of, of evil things, um, I think in looking at the trials of the good, I'd like to return to the story that we've talked about a little bit a couple of times, the, the, the story of Aule and the creation of the dwarves, that I think that that gives a really good, sort of a comparably condensed little glimpse into sort of what's at stake for good people and the kinds of dangers that uh, that goodness and positive desires face. Um, remember the terms of the rebuke that Iluvatar gives to Aule. That is, when he comes down and, you know, he's like, Aule, what are you doing? And Aule's like, uh, you know, he's, <laughs> you caught me. Remember the thing that he accuses him of, Iluvatar says, um, what you have done is beyond your power or authority. Um, it's the, the making was not a problem. The, um, but the trying to create children, um, that, was, that was a problem. And he emphasized, he says, you know, they're not going to have any more being than you. They're, they're, they're going to be like robots. And he says, Is that, was that your desire? And that's a kind of a weighted question. It's not, I think, a purely rhetorical question. Um, you know, now that isn't what you wanted, now is it? I don't think that that's what Iluvatar is saying because, of course, what we see in Aule's sin here, uh, in his error, is him coming within a fraction of what Melkor did. I mean, it's very, very similar to the, to the sin of Melkor. Um, because, of course, Melkor might have answered that question, yes, Let's see, hmm, do I desire to have other creatures besides myself who will automatically and implicitly obey my every will and over whom I dominate completely? Actually, that sounds very attractive, right? In fact, what Melkor's career is about, largely, is trying to take the autonomous, independent, free-willed children of Iluvatar and make them into his own robots, or make them like his own robots, to make them submit to him completely so that they become merely agents of his own will. And his own will tends to dominate them in exactly that way so that they often are chained by his will and come just to act out his will almost like robots. So then why did he make the orcs the way he did? Why did he make them from autonomous beings so they'd have autonomy instead of doing what Owl did? Because one of the things that, uh, is that the text points to about the orcs is their reproduction. Um, orcs reproduce. And in fact, they reproduce a lot. Um, and that was clearly one of the things that he wanted. I, mean, I think there, there are two things that we can see there. One, it serves a practical purpose for that reason. Why keep creating 
you know, having to go through the process of continuing to make uh, new automata all the time, you know, when you can have some which, which reproduce themselves. Can you have automata Apparently not. Apparently not. No, I mean, that's, that's the implication of that passage is that, you know, it's, it points to the reproduction of the orcs um, as one of the things which marks them as in some way derived from the children of Iluvatar. But the other thing also is spite, that the fact, the, the fact of corrupting the children of Iluvatar was a pleasure. Um, you know, in the interest of well, trying to get back at Iluvatar or whatever, I mean, as, as an act of rebellion, um, that, remember, in the Discord, Melkor is trying to assert not necessarily like his own dominance over Iluvatar, but his independence of Iluvatar. I am going to take, I'm going to set up for myself entirely with nobody over me, um, and therefore I'm going to take what you have given me and I'm going to use it for my own ends. I'm going to take the things that you're going to try to do and I'm going to take it over. And that's the impulse that we see with the elves and the orcs. Ah, you have your children. Remember the children which are unique, which are the only things which were not, did not come through the Einor, right? Which the Einor were not the instruments of coming. They're the only things that came directly from Iluvatar himself. So I'm going to take those things. So his hatred is directed at them. Recall, the Valar, their love is given to the children, primarily because they are other than, they are, they are other than themselves. They recognize in them we can, we can see something new of the mind of Iluvatar in the children that we don't see, we don't know in ourselves, and we don't see in each other. But that same thing in the children that makes the, 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 the Valar love them makes Melkor hate them and desire to control them and to dominate them and to pervert them to his own service. Um, so that, I think, is where, wh- what we see him doing with the orcs there. So Aule is asked by Iluvatar, is that your desire? Did you do this because you wanted creatures that you could just rule and who would be your blind instruments? And Aule says, I did not desire such lordship. He hadn't thought that through. He didn't realize that that was what was going to happen. What did he want instead? Do you remember what he says? He said, I desire things other than I am to love and to teach them. He wants to like take care of life. He wants to nourish it. Yeah. And to have learners that I can teach. Right? I want things that are apart. I wanted things that are apart from me. He his heart was with the hearts of the Valar, the love for that which is other than they. And so he was trying to make something which is other than him. And Iluvatar is saying, dude, you, you can't make something that's other than you. You have only the being that was given to you. But what led him astray, or almost astray, was this presumption. To think, I, can, I have been given gifts of making from Iluvatar. I can make like Iluvatar does. And he couldn't. He overstepped himself. But his desire was a positive desire. Where he succeeds, where he passes his test is in humility. Right? He, um, his, when in his response he says, you know, a, a, a child can make a play at the deeds of his father you know, without mockery. Right? He's not setting himself, he's not competing with Iluvatar. He's just trying to imitate him um, in positive ways, in ways which to him, to Aule, are intrinsic to his being. Um, and he knows, you know, he points in humility to the creative impulse that Iluvatar has set within him. So that as we can see what makes 
Aule still a good guy and Melkor a bad guy, right? What, what is good about Aule is still that fundamental direction of humility towards Iluvatar himself. He has overstepped his authority, but his, he has not, his desires have not been corrupted. He loves the works of his hands, but he loves to share them, and he loves to, to give them to others. Um, and he wanted those apart from him because he wanted to love them, and he wanted to teach them. And that's fine. That's a good thing. So, um, so for Tolkien, especially in the story, one of the problems with good, I guess, is that you have just as much potential to do evil. Any, any character can do that, even the Bellar. Yeah, yeah. And the more good you are, the more potential for evil you have. Right? I mean, Melkor and Feanor being the two obvious examples in both the, the, you know, the Order of the Ainur and the Order of the Children of Iluvatar, yeah. the two who have the greatest potential both fall. Um, so yes, there is always the potential of fall. And those who can go higher can fall further. Um, that, is, that is clearly how it goes. Because see, again, it's all, that gets back to the fundamental relationship between good and evil. Right? That... Evil is parasitic on good, and it is a perversion of good. If you are given a good, such as strength, right, that is a good that you are given. If you choose, if your will becomes corrupt, and you, you know, pervert that strength, that's you know, the stronger you are, the more damage you can do. Um, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. Well, and the more you can hurt other people <laughs> is, 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 the other, is the other emphasis there. Kelly? Um, when Aule goes to destroy the dwarves, um, Iluvatar comments on how they now have a life of their own. Is that perhaps a response to Aule's answer as to why he wanted to create the, um, the, the dwarves? Because he gives them the same freedom that... Iluvatar gives his creations. Yeah, it's the life of the dwarves is the independent gift of Iluvatar. They would have just been robots. But he does, and that's why I mean, I joked earlier on calling them the stepchildren of Iluvatar, because I mean, that's kind of what they are. He, he adopts them. I mean, he calls them the children of my adoption uh, instead of the children of his design. Um, but he does adopt them. So yeah, he does grant them life, and he does... Uh, fulfill Aule's desire. And what we see in the dwarves uh, throughout are, you know, they are exactly what he described, that is, learners to whom he can teach. And they become Aule's students. Um, And his love for craftsmanship is always um, very prominent in his children, the dwarves. But the dwarves also often have problems. And one of the chief things, problems that they will come across, and we see this very prominently in The Hobbit, is a dangerous love for their own, uh, for their own works. And the speediness with which their love becomes possessiveness. And that's dangerous. They too That's exactly the kind of thing that happens uh, when dwarves go bad. Um, exactly. <laughs> when dwarves go bad. <laughs> it sounds like a terrible reality show. <laughs> or an amazing reality show. 
<laughs> that's What's true. That's true, I suppose. Two things that I would notice about, uh, th- that I would point out about Aule and the Dwarf, two last things. First is what Iluvatar says to him when he says, okay, I've granted your wish, and I have made them separate and autonomous children, but I'm not going to amend them. As you've made them, so, so they will be. Um, and here again we can see this whole incident is another illustration of Iluvatar's Humility, right? He, you know, he, he could say, all right, look, that you overstepped. Uh, you know, Ali offers to destroy them. Um, and you know, he suggests it. Should I not rather destroy uh, the work of my presumption? And he raises his hammer to destroy them. And it's in that moment that Iluvatar preserves them and adopts them. Um, so, in, you know, he shows both mercy and grace. Uh, to Aule, as Yovana points out, right, you've been given not only forgiveness but bounty. Right, you've been you've been given grace as well as mercy, um, but also the, the sort of the humility involved in saying, "I'm going to incorporate them as is, right? As you've made them, so I will leave them." Um, in other words, you have to still deal with the consequences of your own actions. I'm going to grant your wish, and I'm going to make them children, but. You know, they're flawed. They're flawed, not only because they're short, stocky, and funny looking, but because they're unlovely, excuse me, as they're called later on. But uh, they, I mean, we will see they have certain character flaws. They have, dwarves have a tendency, they're not an evil race, but they have some tendencies to go bad, which come up again and again. Possessiveness and vengefulness being the two, like, prevailing sins of, of the dwarf population. And both of those things um, we can see as being sort of a situation made inherent in, in their creation by L.A. Yeah, well? It also seems like they don't often contribute to the like, ongoing battle against the darkness. Good. Yes, they tend to be secretive and they stick to themselves. Remember when they first meet the elves, they're quick to learn the language of the elves. Um, and the elves don't particularly want to learn their language, which they find cumbrous and unlovely. Uh, the dwarves' language is, is hard, and they don't like it. But the dwarves don't want to teach them. Their language is secret, and they don't like to share it with anybody else, and they don't like to tell anybody else about it. They are a very private, shut-apart, and secretive people, and that's not great. It shows that their desire to separate themselves and to hold themselves aloof, they do participate in the wars against Melkor, as some of them will participate in the wars against Sauron, but not all of them. And even, I mean, even good dwarves still tend to be clannish and to stick to, to themselves first. This is the other thing that I would point out about this story with Aule. We see that even though you know, good comes of it and, uh, and, and Iluvatar grants his request, it still results in division. Um, like within Aule's marriage, right? I mean, Yovana points out, since you kept this from me, there will always be strife between your children and my children. Um, and we will see this in, uh, this is one of the things which lies way, way, way in the distant, distant past behind that awkward moment when Gimli finally meets Treebeard in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and Treebeard does not think much of dwarves. <laughs> Uh, because Treebeard is par excellence the child of Yavanna, and uh, Gimli is a dwarf, and none of the trees of Fangorn are very comfortable with that. 
um, there is always strife. They don't care. The dwarves just, they don't care much for growing things. Um, they don't value growing things. They deal in stone and metal almost exclusively. So, um, so again, so division comes from it. Um, it's not in showing mercy and grace to Aule, Iluvatar doesn't remove that. He doesn't undo entirely the, the, the evil consequences, and there are evil consequences of the mistake that Aule made. We'll go ahead. Uh, are ants, are so are ants Maya, or are they the children of Iran? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we kind of skipped over ants before. Um, ants are hard to categorize. They are not children of Iluvatar, it seems. Uh, they are not of the same order. Um, when Manwe and Yavana are talking about this, um, Manwe implies that spirits from outside will come in um, and sort of invest the trees, um, which would link them to the Maya rather than to children. But at the same time, the parallelism between the dwarves on the one hand and the ants on the other hand suggests that they're more of the same kind of order. Um, it's a little unclear. There is also, of course, Treebeard will tell when we meet Treebeard a kind of alternative myth behind the origins of elves, that, or of ants, rather. That is, he will describe ants as being essentially the kind of the creatures of elves. That the early elves went around waking trees up and teaching them how to speak, and that's where ants came from. Um, and they say, you know, they always are very grateful to el- for elves for curing them of dumbness. Um, but I don't think that this is really in contradiction to the story of Aule and Yavanna. Um, Yavanna is, Yavanna and Manwe are foreseeing for what's going to happen, um, and they are going to be her children, even if the elves are the instruments of making that happen, just as the Valar themselves are used as the instruments of Iluvatar for the things that he wants to happen. Um, so I don't think that there's any particular problem there. Um, but again, exactly what are the ants? Where it really gets sticky? When push comes to shove, how you tell one of the children from one of the non-children, is what happens if they die? That's like, that's like oh, it's always the big question, right? Uh, that's why, like I said, you know, with hobbits, it's, a, it's, it's, a pretty, it's pretty much of a no-brainer that they are related in their destiny to men because they share the fate of men. They are mortal, they die and go we know not whither. So that, you know, that's kind of open and shut. Ents, what happens when ants die? What's going to go on? It's really complicated. Tolkien didn't know. He didn't really work it out very fully. Um, in the song of the ants... Huh? Their bodies become the grass. Well, kind of. But the, see, the problem is at the end of the song of the ant and the ant wife that Treebeard sings, which is an elvish song that he's recounting, um, it speaks of a future destiny, which kind of sounds like possibly a resurrection, kind of maybe. In, and, and in his own letters, Tolkien was really unclear about this. When people are asking, like, you know, what really happened to the ant wives and, 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 and what, what's up with the ants? And he says, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, and he speculates. He's like, maybe this happens, maybe that happens, I don't know. Um, so it's never really firmly worked out. So the ants are kind of, kind of complicated. Dragons also. Are similar, dragons and eagles are also similarly complicated. Um, they seem to be, dragons seem to have been created by Melkor bringing in evil spirits like Lesser Maiar and 
uh, sort of embodying them in a monstrous fleshly body. Um, but the dragons procreate, and uh, you know, and and you know, is Smaug was Smaug himself a Maiar who was embodied? That doesn't seem at all clear. He seems to be descended from other dragons. So, um, this is these things r- remain a bit muddy. I think. Yeah. So just to further confuse the discussion. Oh, please, yes, in let's do that. In your expert opinion, what <laughs> did happen to the we don't know. We don't know what happened. Um, odds are that the safe money is they're dead. I'm sorry to say. The safe, the safe money is that they're all dead. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Kelly. <laughs> it's, very, it's very hard. But I, the real question is, when they died, where did they but that's exactly that's that's the big unanswered question. That's the big unanswered question. Um, the uh, I wrote an article on this. Um, yeah, I, I, um, yeah. You find it in Tolkien studies, uh, uh, but it's. Um, One of the points of the stories is that it is unresolved and unanswered. Um, but uh, Tolkien did say that they're, they're, they're probably dead. Yeah, but this doesn't. But that's not the end of the story. As the end of the song of the Internet Wife suggests, um, it suggests a happy ending. It suggests a reunion between the two of them, though only when both have lost all that they had um, after destruction. After destruction, in fact. Um, which in the song sounds like Armageddon. I mean, after, 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 after the end of the world, they're going to be reunited. Um, it's possible. It's, it's possible to read the song of the Ant and the Antwife um, in such a way that the final couplet that describes the reunion of the Ant and the Antwife may actually be um, either in Valinor or some earthly paradise or even in the new heaven and new earth uh, that will be made after the, you know, the, 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 the great music. Um, of the Ainur and the children at the end of days. Um, all, all tragic stories are still good stories. Uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Going to have a happy ending. All stories eventually have a happy ending. But, sorry. <laughs> okay, well. What about the old forest on the forest of Buckland? We're starting to stray pretty far from uh, the Silmarillion here, but... This <laughs> is Tom Bombadil. Uh, we're just going to bring it on. Okay, after this, we'll talk about whether Balrogs have wings, and then we'll be done. Uh, no. The answer is no. Balrogs don't have wings. We're done talking about that. Now, uh, yeah, I know they did in the movie. Um, I'm not going to talk about Tom Bombadil. Uh, <laughs> both because uh, both because I've already done like an entire podcast on Tom Bombadil, and also because uh, we're going to get there when we when we when we read the, the the Tom Bombadil chapters in the Fellowship of the Ring, we'll talk more about Tom Bombadil. Um, your other question was about the old, old forest. forest, like Old Man Willow, and yeah, it's possible. Of course, we should be alive. Like that. Uh, yeah, I. 
I think that there's evidence of entish activity. And uh, certainly, like uh, Old Man Willow is, a, is clearly a sentient tree, um, but he seems more Huorn-like than, than Ent-like. Um, and there is evidence of Ent sightings in the Shire. You may remember um, uh, Sam sitting and talking with Ted Sandyman in the bar um, in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, recounting his cousin saying that he saw an elm tree walking on the North Moors. Um, but that would be an ent, not an entwife. Entwives don't look like elm trees. Um, ents do. What are they like? Fruit trees, uh, originally. But, uh, but then after bending over their labors in the cultivation of the fields, they became sort of stooped and withered. And, and Treebeard says, I, frankly, I don't even know what they would look like uh, nowadays if they... No, Rachel, they couldn't just be Yeah, yeah. But we were talking about the Silmarillion. Were we? We were. If you recall that 20 minutes ago we began talking about the Silmarillion, or rather 20 minutes ago we stopped talking about the Silmarillion, and we're not going to return to it. So, Aule, the... the, the the sin and repentance of Aule, uh, what sort of the, what tempted him to do wrong what he did and how he you know, gets out of it, how, or why he gets off, um, what, what it was that was good about him are really good models for the kinds of things that we see in other places. Uh, so one, one of the primary themes that, that keeps coming back that we can see in Aule and, uh, uh, and see in many other places is this, well, Turgon is the queerest example. Turgon, you will all doubtless recall instantly, is the son of Fingolfin, who's the one who builds Gondolin, right? This, the hidden city? Nod to humor me. Good, okay. <laughs> and uh, why does he build Gondolin? Anyone recall? Now everyone who is nodding, nodding is studiously looking down at their books. <laughs> Doubtless you will recall the story of the day, the day when uh, Finrod Felagund and Turgon, of, of, uh, whose city was in Vinyamar out in Nevrast by the sea, uh, are hanging out together one day hunting, um, and they fall asleep, and each of them has a separate dream in which Olmo appears to them and gives them a message. That is prepare because things are going to get really bad. And so both of them come out and, they, you know, they, they, they both of them emerge from this dream with this impulse to create a fortified place where they can protect themselves and their people. And this is what leads Finrod to go and he eventually he finds that, you know, he goes and visits Thingol and Melian uh, in their... Uh, palace of Menegroth, the Thousand Caves, and he's seeing the huge underground complex that, that Thingol and Melian live in, and he's like, this is a really sweet setup you guys have here. And then he finds the caves by the river Narog, and is like, ooh, I'm feeling it here. And so he has that expanded into his great city of Nargothrond, modeled after Menegroth, and so Nargothrond of Finrod Felgun becomes one of the great uh, strong places. And of course, the other thing is not just strength, but secrecy. They go into hiding. Nobody knows where Nargothrond is. Well, very few people know where, Nargoth- where Nargothrond is. So it's this secret place of, 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 of strength that they can hole up in and be protected from, from Morgoth for a long time. From that same dream, Turgon says he, he's going to go one step even further, and he finds the hidden veil of Tumladen in the middle of the mountains. It's this green veil with a hill in the middle, 
surrounded by mountains on all sides. There's like this one secret tunnel in uh, which he, you know, and he like seals off every other possible way in and puts gates over that one and conceals the entrance. Um, and then in secret builds the, the beautiful city of Gondolin and then smuggles all of his people in. Uh, and so they go in and so nobody knows at all where they are. They don't even know what part of the continent Gondolin is located in. Yes. Shouldn't you smuggle all those people in and then build the city, or did you do it single-handed? <laughs> no, th- there were there were craftsmen who were smuggled in in advance, uh, and who have been working on it. But he doesn't bring everybody in until it's till it's all ready for the for the for the move. So anyway, so they all they all sneak into Gondolin and they they close it up. Now he is given that is Turgon is given a warning by Olmo, and this is. Important enough to read. Page 125. The bottom of the page. Omo comes to him again and speaks to him and says, Now thou shalt go, to, go at last to Gondolin, Turgon, and I will maintain my power in the vale of Syrian and in all the waters therein, so that none shall mark thy going, nor shall any find there the hidden entrance against thy will. Longest of all the realms of the, of the Eldalie shall Gondolin stand against Melkor. Now here's the important warning. But love not too well the work of thy hands and the devices of thy heart, and remember that the true hope of the Noldor lieth in the west and cometh from the sea. Love not too well the work of thy hands. This is one of the warnings that echoes throughout the Silmarillion. Love not too well. That doesn't mean don't love the work of your hands. The city that, that Turgon builds, the, the, the thing almost talking about, is a wonderful work of hand. It's not only the greatest, be- most beautiful, and most glorious city, um, but what, remember what it's designed to look like? It's a remembrance of Elven Tyrion. It's like a it's like a scale model of Tyrion upon Tuna. Back in <laughs> back in there's another hill which is not named Tuna, fortunately. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> no, stop it. <laughs> so he builds this city, a memory of Elven Tyrion, and he he even builds in it replicas of the two trees. He builds a tree of gold and a tree of silver. Um, it, with his own hands, Turgon is himself a great craftsman. Um, and, and so and it's, the whole city is designed as a remembrance. It's like a little, a little glimpse of the blessed realm here in Middle-earth, and it's the closest to the blessed realm that any of the elven realms get to. Again, Doriath is a little bit different because Melian herself lives there and she is a Meyer, so, so Menegroth is always a little special for that reason. But, but Gondolin is the closest that they get to actually rebuilding something from the, from the blessed realm there. So there's, that's a good thing. That's a good impulse by Turgon. He's one of the only ones who is looking back. And in this case, looking back is a good thing. He is not just saying like his brother Fingon did, like his cousin Goadriel did. He's not just saying, hey, yeah, let's get to Middle-earth and then we'll set up our own kingdoms and it'll be awesome and we'll have these expanded realms and we'll be great lords. He, though he went along with the rebellion, now in rebellion and in exile is still hearkening back not just to the glory of his previous existence, but even, in this sense, to its, to its allegiance. And I think that it's, it's no accident that he's the one that almost speaks to most clearly and he is the one who is still most in touch with 
that one of the Valar who still stays in close touch with the people of, of, of Middle-earth. Finrod has that one vision, but he doesn't get the second injunction from Olmo. So again, the building of Gondolin, it's a great thing. The, the city is a great thing. The building is a great thing. Uh, the remembrance is great. The beauty of it is great, but love not too well the works of your hands. Um, and remember that the true... That the true uh, I want to make sure I get it right. The true hope of the Noldor lieth in the west and cometh from the sea. Don't rely on yourself. Don't just, don't make an idol of this beautiful city that you have made. So what do you think is going to happen? I, I think he's probably going to end up loving too well the works of his own hands. It's not, not quite so bad as the golden calf, but, uh, uh, but it's, it's going to be, it's going to, yeah. Um, watch how Turgon dies eventually. Turgon's cause of death is fitting under the circumstances. Um, he is one of the great heroes, Turgon is, but this is always a danger. This is always a peril. It's, the, it's one of the foremost perils of beauty, and it's another one of the primary examples of that same kind of paradox that I've talked about before. Tolkien doesn't say, reject all worldly things, forget worldly things. Worldly things are, are shallow and tawdry and horrible and instead think only of eternal things. Value the beauty of worldly things. Value the work of your hands. Uh, focus on the work of your own hands. Make the work of your own hands a good and a glorious thing. That's a good thing. That's what you're supposed to do. But, but don't love it too much. At the end of the day, don't forget. That's not... That's not where your heart is really supposed to be. All, your heart can't be just tied up into that. You can't start loving it with a greedy love or else, or else you're going you're gonna to get into big trouble. And he insists on both of those things at once, um, limiting the extent of your connection to beautiful things and to worldly things, but, but not just saying, hey, scrap it all. It's not worth anything. Um, one point I wanted to bring up now that we're on the subject of Gondolin, uh, about the sketchy grandson of Turgon, um, that is Maeglin, M-A-E-G-L-I-N. Um, one thing I will confess from the beginning, um, I read these books well before I knew how correctly to pronounce most of the things in them. Um, and you've probably all had the experience of mispronouncing in childhood the name of something that you learned later you were mispronouncing the whole time, but having a hard time getting out of the habit of mispronouncing it in the way you pronounced it for years. I have this problem with two names in the Silmarillion. Um, that is, I always pronounced when I was younger the A-E combination as A, when it, it, it should be pronounced I. So Mythros and Myglin are the two that I will probably mispronounce at various points during the class because I can't get out of the habit of thinking them as, of, as, as, as Maedhros and Maeglin, which is how I always pronounced it before I found I was doing it wrong. Um, anyway, Maeglin. What's weird about Maeglin? I mean, okay, so his dad was a bit of a jerk, but that's not his fault. And... But what do we hear about him at the very end of his story? When he gets to Gondolin, what is he like? What's he attracted to? 
Their first cousins, yeah, his first cousin, Idril. That's bad. That's crooked. Um, so that she, uh, she is on the one hand really um, just kind of, it, it just kind of grosses her out that, uh, the, I, I mean, that he loves her at all. Um, but Tolkien even says that it's, it's of course, even, she's thinking, even if you weren't my first cousin, you know, no, like, you know, she loved him not at all, <laughs> right, which is, which is pretty strong language in the Silmarillion. Um, so even if they weren't first cousins and therefore forbidden to marry, but, but remember the point is, he says, no one had ever, no one among the elves had ever even wanted to marry their first cousin before. I mean, it was illegal to do it, but I mean, even to want that shows that something is not right in my gun. And one of the questions that this raises, which is something which will be an issue for later on, thinking back um, to, in one sense, to the free will and predestination question. Maeglin is crooked. Let's read the passage. It's on 139. He says, From his first days in Gondolin, he had borne a grief ever worsening that robbed him of all joy. He loved the beauty of Idril and desired her without hope. The Eldar wedded not with kin so near, nor ever before had any desired to do so. And however that might be, Idril loved Maeglin not at all. And knowing his, knowing his thought of her, she loved him the less. For it seemed to her a strange and crook, a thing strange and crooked in him, as indeed the Eldar ever since have deemed it, an evil fruit of the kinslaying, whereby the shadow of the curse of Mandos fell upon the last hope of the Noldor. The last hope of the Noldor, of course, is Gondolin itself. Remember, Olmo says it's going to be the last standing of all of the strongholds of, of the Noldor. But eventually, Gondolin's going down. And we are receiving heavy hints here that Maeglin is going to be how that's going to happen. That it is through Maeglin that the shadow of the curse of Mandos is going to fall upon Gondolin. But, but notice the crookedness that leads to his desire for Idril is described as an evil fruit of the kinslay. In other words, it's the curse of Mandos for the sin that the Noldor committed back in Alcolande, that Maeglin is the way he is. So it's not his fault. In fact, it begins to sound, you know, we talked about the, the fall of the Noldor and its parallels to Genesis chapter 3 and the, and the sin of, of, of Eve. And it begins to sound, the way that the curse of Mandos is being talked about, the curse of the Noldor, is sounding almost, beginning to sound almost like original sin. Like Maeglin was one who was born under original sin. And so through no fault of his own, he just by birth is crooked. He's just messed up. Is inclined to evil. So does this mean that Maeglin is not responsible? That it's not his fault? Well, I don't think so necessarily. And we see... We see choices that he makes from the beginning. When, when his mom, Arathel, is telling him stories about Gondolin, when they're still hanging out in Nan Elmoth, 
when he's hearing stories about Gondolin, his favorite part of the stories is to hear about Torgan and that he has no heir. And then he's like, maybe we should go to Gondolin. And Maglin is not dumb. And he's immediately calculating, hey, hmm, we go back to Gondolin, then gosh, I think I am the male heir in line from Turgon, aren't I? Because he only has one child, you know, a girl. And then, you know, and so then, so he's his nephew. He's like, yeah, I could totally inherit Gondolin, which would be pretty sweet. So we can see him scheming for himself from the very beginning. Now, again, is this a thing crooked in him? Is this his own choice? Well, yes, both, it seems. He is clearly making choices. Even his own love for Idril seems to be in part crooked because it's confounded with his ambition. Yes, he would be the closest male heir to Turgon, but of course, if he marries Idril, it's in the bag, right? I mean, that's the way to really to solidify himself. He becomes this, you know, the, 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 the right-hand guy of Turgon. Boy, if he could pull off marrying Idril, then absolutely, he, is, he would be king. So even his love, it's not just this wonderful, unrequited passion by Maeglin. Um, there's something calculating to it as well. And he's liked this idea from way back before he ever met Idril or ever saw her. Um, so... Keep this in mind. Again, I think that we can see in many places, and as I said, it's in the story of Turin Turinbar that we'll come back to this most. Um, but there, like here we, can, here, we can get a glimpse of what I think we can see more clearly there, which is that both of those things tend to contribute, both the individual choices of the person and also the fate, the doom that they lie, that they lie under. Um, once the Noldor returned to Beleriand, there's this doom that is hovering over everybody. Um, and not everyone is automatically entangled with it. Doriath, for instance, is not affected by the doom of Mandos, by the curse of Mandos. Not yet. It will be, but not yet. Um, one last thing I want to talk about, the very last chapter that we read for today, the, de- the discovery of men. We see here another one of those echoes, another one of those recapitulations. We have a typological moment. How do we meet the men? How are the men discovered by the elves of Beleriand? Well, there are the men, and they've been moving westward, and they've just come over the Blue Mountains. And Finrod, who is out hunting on his own, is riding through the woods, and he hears them. He goes over and meets them. What should we be remembering when we hear this story? Yeah, it's an almost exact parallel of the story of Arome coming upon the elves after they awoke. Notice how everything is smaller scale now, right? We have the elves, the firstborn, found by one of the Valar who's out hunting. And now we have the men, the, the secondborn, the aftercomers, found by one of the elves. 
um, who is above them, not quite as the Valar are above the elves, but anyway, who is clearly above them, whom they take for a god. And he comes among them, and he learns their speech, and he teaches them. And then what does he do? What do the elves do with the men? They bring them among them. They say, hey, come, come live in our realms with us. And Finrod takes the leader of the men that he meets that first night into his service. And the man changes his name to Beor, which means vassal. And he swears service to Finrod for the rest of his life, which is quite long. I mean, for men. He goes to like 90-ish. Now, the parallels between this story of the discovery of men by elves and the discovery of elves by the Valar are, I mean, there, there are many parallels there. Right? The echo is very clear. Now, why? What's the pattern? Remember I said before, when we see these kinds of typological moments, when we see this same, uh, this same story being recapitulated later on, we need to back up and think, what's, what's the pattern here? What is being emphasized? What is the story or the principle that is being played out? Can we identify the motif in the music that's being worked out here? Yeah. I think it kind of furthers the fact that um, Iluvatar, you know, delegates the world to the Ainur, and then the Ainur sort of passes the torch to the elves, who then will later pass the torch on to the race of men. And it sort of allows each progressive generation sort of has a greater freedom to do their own thing. Yeah, good. Clearly the... What both of these encounters are about are about the relationship between the higher and the lower, right? And in both cases, both both the discovery of elves and the discovery of men, we have the higher condescending, coming among them, bringing them, bringing them up with them, um, boosting them up, loving them, caring for them. Um, and that does seem to be a pattern, and I agree with you. Of course, it's not an exact parallel to the relationship between Iluvatar and the Ainur, but there are some echoes there. I agree. Um, the way that he loves them, the way that he respects them, the way that he brings them. Even him propounding a theme for them to sing is sort of like him bringing them to where he lives, right? And, inv- and involving them uh, in his work, in the work of creation. Good. Well, I, like to, oh, I think it'd be really funny if, if a man went riding one day through the Shire. <laughs> Found the hobbits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't... We don't, we don't get quite that, but, 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 but yeah, I mean, that would be the next logical step, right? Yeah, yeah, Aaron? Maybe I missed it or can't remember it, but when exactly are the dwarves brought back? The dwarves get... Um, after Iluvatar says, okay, I'm going to adopt them as children, he does say, but I'm not going to reward your impatience, right? They, they still have to wait. They go back to sleep. Yeah, so he puts them to sleep, and he hides them. He you know, like stashes them in seven, they're the seven fathers of the dwarves, and he stashes them in seven diff- different places around the world so that when the dwarves awake, they awake sometime after the children. We don't know when exactly it is. Sometime between when the elves wake in Quivian and, and when the Noldor come back because the, the Sindar in Middle-earth meet the dwarves, and they're already established. They've built their little kingdoms, and then the elves are traveling one day, and they're like, whoa, 
funny-looking, strange-talking little guys with beards. Uh, and, and they, you know, but they, you know, they, they get to know each other, and they, and they sort of kind of get along. Um, so when that happens is kind of unclear. But they do come back before the men? They, they... Yes, yes. They definitely awake before the men. It was interesting because Elizabeth was, was saying, you know, they're not going to come before my children, but he brings them before men. Right. But it's chiefly the firstborn. Everyone's waiting on the firstborn. I mean, they're all waiting on the elves. I mean, of course, the elves are first. So they're really, they're, like, they're waiting for the children, which means waiting for the elves. And that's what he does. He says, you know, I won't have them come before the firstborn. Um, but they do come before, before the men. That seems to be fine. Or they're the middle children. Exactly, yeah. They're, 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 the dwarves are like, they're, they're, the, they're middle stepchildren. I mean, they're all, they're all kinds of, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, all kind, they're in all kinds of awkward positions there um <laughs> some of them are anyway uh they we also see in the story of the in the story of the coming of men the yearning of men towards the light why are they traveling west when they when finrod comes upon them they're celebrating they finished crossing the mountains and they're having what, in context, is a very ironic celebration. They're celebrating because they have finally passed out of the lands of darkness and danger. And they have come to the place where everything can be safe and they've left evil behind forever. Which turns out to be very little like Beleriand. Right? Um, and of course, though they don't know it, they're getting closer to the source of the evil, not further away from it. But the reason they've come is that they are moving away from darkness and towards light. It's on page 141. A darkness lies behind us, Beor said, and we have turned, turned our backs upon it, and we do not desire to return thither even in thought. Westwards our hearts have been turned, and we believe that there we shall find light. So they have this instinctive desire for light and knowledge that it is in the West. They've never been to Valinar. The Valar never come and meet them and invite them to come over. But they know of it and they're drawn towards it. We also get the hints of a Garden of Eden experience in their background. We have, of the dealings with Morgoth and men, uh, uh, it is rumored that when Morgoth found out that men had woken up, he went himself to investigate and had some kind of interaction, we don't know what, with them, which may or may not have involved the form of a serpent. <laughs> of his dealings with men, the Eldar indeed knew nothing at that time and learnt but little afterwards, but that a darkness lay upon the hearts of men as the shadow of the kinslaying and the doom of Mandos lay upon the Noldor, they perceived clearly, even in the people of the elf friends whom they first knew. They are already corrupt when they meet them. There is already this Paul that is like original sin, which in this case presumably is original sin, uh, lying on the hearts of men, just as the original sin-esque curse of Mandos lies upon the Noldor. So that, that has already happened. There has already been a fall somewhere back in the history of men which is not known to the elves. I'll just end with one brief uh, 
just we talked at some length about the different divisions of the elves before. I want to make sure that we can keep vaguely clear the divisions of the men. The men who come over the mountains are in three kindreds, just like we have the three kindreds of the elves, right? So we have another parallel there. Those are the three kindred which are called the Adain and dwell among the elves. There are three major families. Who are they? Huh? They're going to be, they're later on. The Numenorians are the descendants of basically all three of these houses. The three houses are the children of Haleth, the wonderful story of Haleth and her whole family being killed and then her resolutely leading her people, uh, a very dangerous journey to find their own land. The thing which is most remarkable about the children of Haleth is that they don't really align themselves with an elvish family. They set up on their own, almost completely independently. Where they end up living in the forest of Brethil is kind of a suburb of Doriath. It's not within the girdle of Melian, but it's, but it's, you know, it's still kind of claimed by Thingol. Um, he gives them permission to live there, but they're not, they don't serve him. They're not his vassals. The other kindred of men, the children of, of Malach, originally, um, the, but the greatest and most famous king of them uh, is Hador, the golden, um, and he is the progenitor of most of the human heroes that we will read about later on, Hurin and Huor and their sons, Turin and Tuor. They live up in Hithlum in the northwest, and they take service under Fingolfin and Fingon. Which, which gives them a kind of exalted place among the men because they are serving the high king of the Noldor, Fingolfin and later Fingon. Uh, and also because they, they, are, they are tall, they are valiant, they are, they are hardy, they live in the frozen tundra of Hithlum, and they are like the first line of defense against Morgoth. They're the ones who live closest to Angband. The third family... Um, were the descendants of Beor who served Finrod, but they don't all go and serve Finrod. Um, and the, f- the most famous child from that family, we will see that family get almost entirely wiped out uh, in the reading for Monday. But, um, but Baron, son of Barahir, is of that third kindred um, and will become the most famous of all of the human heroes in the first age. Any questions? Especially any of those last name questions or anything like that? Prepare for next time. Uh, We will get the first of the horribly tragic battles that happen in the decline of Beleriand. Uh, And then we will get the story of Baron and Luthien. And the story, pay special attention to the story of Baron and Luthien because the story of Baron and Luthien is probably the, the greatest, most central story, not only of the whole Silmarillion, but of all of Tolkien's works. It may be the most uh, sort of, for his works and in his mind, the single most important story um, of any that he wrote. Um, so it's, uh, it's uh, Baron and Luthien. They're a big deal. All right? See you on Monday. 
And so the marathon makeup session came to an end. Many thanks to my students who showed up for this completely optional exercise. On Monday, we return to our regular day, time, and venue for a discussion of what may be the greatest and most central of all the stories that Tolkien wrote, the tale of Baron and Luthien. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.